Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 13th of September 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Well, just as the uh, uh, benefits of the summer are over, autumn approaches, people feeling pretty good. It seems that the next round of fear is to be unleashed upon them. Debbie, what have you got? Well, yes, good afternoon, everyone. I just wanted to give um, all our viewers and listeners out there an update on what's going to be obviously the early signs of surveillance going forward. The UK HSA have announced that we're going to have increased surveillance, but they haven't told us quite what. So this story in the mail rather alarmed me, where it says that COVID and flu autumn vaccine rollouts kick off today. That was Monday, the uh, 11th of September. It also says 30 million care home residents invited for jab one month early amid fears over mutant Pirola variant. Well, as far as I'm aware, there are 500,000 care home residents, not 30 million. So I would challenge the mail on that. But let's see what uh, Susan Hopkins from the UK HSA said. She said, uh, responding to whether the unvaccinated majority would be at risk of illness or missing work, Miss Hopkins added, some of them will be off work, but many won't be because many people now have very mild asymptomatic illness and don't even know they have it. And additionally, there you can see that they're pushing for flu jabs. But, so but hold, hold I went on a second, on Debbie. The... Hold, hold on. Sorry, go on. But, but if we go back to the beginning, was asymptomatic illness uh, not the, problem, <laughs> the thing that caused us to be locked down and, uh, and caused the, uh, the vaccination programme? <laughs> yes, I'm speechless, indeed. Mike. What can I say? Indeed. Words fail me. Okay. But you will be glad to know that the MHRA are very busy approving uh, more vaccines. So this one is uh, the latest one. Now, notice this one's for XB 1.5 subvariant. That's not the same as Pirola. But rest assured, Moderna have got the uh, the solution on the way. So they're going to be rolling out a jab, according to the independent. Moderna and Pfizer are going to be rolling one out for BA 28 six, I believe, very shortly. But it seems the experts in the UK are getting a little bit jumpy about it. And they seem to be getting particularly jumpy in Scotland. So let's look at Professor Roland Cow, who's actually saying we need to bring back free COVID tests. Let's hurry up and bring free COVID tests. But he's not alone, because you might remember uh, Devi Sridhar, Professor Devi Sridhar, uh, she's been very busy as well pressing the fear button. And I'll talk a little minute about Devi Sridhar. But she seems to think that vaccines should be rolled out for absolutely everybody. Um, but let's just jump to avian flu. And I'll do that for a reason. And you'll understand in a minute why. Because we've also got apparently an outbreak again of avian flu. And the National Trust is giving us all sorts of warnings, as are the experts. But which expert is giving us a warning about avian flu? Well, yet again, it seems to be Professor, De Devi, uh, sorry, Professor Devi Sridhar. Um, she seems to be hitting the panic button as she's warning of an epidemic avian flu. But let's just remind ourselves about Professor Devi Sridhar, and I'm sure David Scott would have a lot to say about her. She's been ever so busy. She's even released a, a new book. Um, this book is called Preventable, and she talks in depth about the, the Twitter storm she's had, the hate uh, the, the hate mail she's had. She even tells neighbours not to say that she lives where she lives, and her only companion is a tortoise. So let's just remember that Devi Sridhar is a public health researcher. She's worked with that. She works for the WEF, the WHO. She's worked with the World Bank. Uh, she's worked alongside Chelsea Clinton and also the Wellcome Trust. So I rest my case if you want to believe someone like Professor Devi Sridhar. Okay. Um, thank you, Debbie. I've actually worked out that the male headline is correct because we're making an assumption if they're talking about a care home, they're talking about some form of building that's a care home. In fact, they seem to regard the whole of the UK as being one government controlled care home. So presumably that 30 million figure is correct. Yes. Okay. Sorry to be cynical on that, but this seems to be where we are. Just stay in your little care home and let us, the government, look after your health. 
Yes. Um, okay. Thank you, Debbie. Let's uh, move on then to international affairs. And of course, uh, well, who is uh, visiting Russia today? It was Kim Jong-un from uh, uh, North Korea. Uh, so Kim, Kim Jong-un and uh, Vladimir Putin meeting at the uh, Cosmodrome in eastern uh, Russia. Space, a big feature of this, of course. Um, so they, uh, this was immediately after apparently uh, North Korea was busy firing two more uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and tests uh, off the east coast. Um, so anyway, the, if we here's the the image of them both sitting side by side, looking very happy together. Uh, the British narrative, of course, in this is that Russia is isolated. We'll hear a bit more about that in a second. Which of course Russia isn't, but that's the narrative. Um, and uh, as we know, it isn't because the entire global south is with Russia at the moment, the so-called global south. Anyway, North Korea, on the other hand, is completely isolated. Uh, it's been under sanctions for uh, decades. Uh, now, here's what uh, Kim Jong, uh, Jong-un said. Uh, now, Russia is fighting a sacred fight to protect the state sovereignty and, and security while combating hegemonic forces that oppose it. Uh, we have always supported every decision that P- President Putin or the Russian government makes. Uh, so that was his position uh, today. Uh, the BBC's position, though, is that he is there to sell weapons to Russia because Russia needs weapons and particularly artillery shells. Uh, It is thought that Russia might need 122 millimeter, 152 millimeter shells because its stocks are running low, low, but it's not easy to determine North Korea's full artillery inventory given its secretive nature. Yeah, well, of course, BBC has been trying to tell us that the Russians are running out of ammunition for the bulk of the of the war in Ukraine, and that was clearly untrue. So there's no evidence to support what they're saying. But yes, it's highly likely that uh, the Russians are after more ammunition. I yeah, think. but are they going to be after it from, from North Korea? I don't think so. I mean, think well, of it in this terms, Brian. Uh, Russia's uh, defense budget is $26 billion equivalent, right? Yep. Uh, the UK's is $50 billion, just to give an idea of the, the, the scope. Uh, North Korea's budget is $4 billion equivalent, and most of that seems to be being spent on testing these intercontinental ballistic missiles. So what do they actually have? What kind of infantry do they have? Probably not very much in reality. So is that the likely explanation? Uh, I'm going to say not. But anyway, much more likely China would be the supplier because its, it's defense budget at the moment is $227 billion equivalent. So so anyway, this was the uh, Russian response. Russia maintains its position in the United Nations and the Security Council because, of course, uh, North Korea is suffering under sanctions for many, many years as a pariah state, as everybody knows. Uh, but this cannot, should not, and will not be an obstacle to the future development of Russian-North Korean relations. So the uh, Russians saying that they're going to stick with the fact that they are taking part in that sanctions regime against North Korea at this point, uh, but they're not going to allow that to affect the future relationship. Um, so my question then is, if it, if it Maybe it is about weapons. I find that highly unlikely. But if it isn't, then what is it more likely to be about? I think North Korea is looking at the BRICS, at Russia, China, South Africa, and so on, the so-called global south, the, the expansion of the BRICS, uh, and the fact that uh, it has been seen or been viewed by just about everybody as a pariah state for so long. They're wanting to come in from the cold, as it were, uh, and they're trying to. They're they're seeing Russia as a likely partner because Russia is getting the the North Korea treatment at the moment? Um, Well, I I think that's distinctly possible, Um, Mike. Presumably, they're going to offer something in return for the coming in from the cold, as it were. So what would be on offer? And just the other point on that is that if the North Koreans are focused on producing material and uh, ammunition, they're quite capable of doing it, even at a smaller scale than we may say the Russians. Okay. So we'll see. But um, one thing's for sure that if Russia is producing uh, ammunition and military equipment, and uh, North Korea is certainly doing that, uh, we seem to have a little bit of a problem in UK. And uh, I was um, pointed at this video clip. Now, this is originally from Forces News. So this is the broadcaster that, that broadcasts to the military in UK. However, this particular clip had been uh, overlain uh, with commentary uh, from uh, Eastern Europe. So I presume that will be actually from Russia. Uh, but if we just uh, if we can just pop that uh, first one back on screen, uh, the key, <coughs> excuse me, the key thing here is that um, as the Western 
Ukraine, as, sorry, as the Western-trained Ukrainian offensive fails, and clearly it's doing that with huge casualties. Uh, what have we got the top uh, military people here? Well, they're lamenti- lamenting over their tanks. Sorry, struggling with my words a bit today. Um, So I've put the caption in here for Army General uh, Patrick Saunders. I've lost my tank and it really hurts. And uh, I find this an incredible film clip because it gives us an insight into what I regard as breakdown of the mentality at the top of Britain's military. Let's have a look at what he says to camera. Seeing the first challenges in action and the Challenger is, um, in many respects, one of the most advanced tanks in the world, and it's certainly the best protected. And you saw that, you know, when one of the, the you know, the first Challenger was lost in action, the crew all gone out. They did, but what went through your mind when you did see it and destroyed? Well, I mean, an emotional tug because I've probably been on that tank. You know, I mean, we have a deep affection with the vehicles and the equipment that we've been fighting with over the last years. But I also recognise that that's what happens in war. So the reason he can recognise the tank, and he's probably been on that tank, is that we hardly have any tanks. That's uh, why that little rule works. But of course, what does he ignore? The fact that 14 challenges were given on the promise that this was going to change the war in Ukraine, when the reality is, of course, it was going to do nothing of the sort, and now two challenges have been lost. We're not talking about the thousands of Ukrainians who died as a result of the failure of the West to train them to beat the Russians. We're crying over the fact that we've lost a challenger. But uh, this was the Guardian report on the uh, same story, Um, slightly emotive and clearer video, but we won't bother to play this. Um, but the key question the Guardian's asking is this, is this one of the 14 UK challenges that Kiev was supposed to be holding in reserve for a frontline breakthrough? And if we add a bit of this, the article says that Britain has 213 Challenger tanks remaining, but uh, that has to be corrected because only 157 of those are operational. Now, that's part of the uh, commentary in this article from The Guardian. Uh, But what we're witnessing is complete inadequacy in the British military as a result of failures, not only by senior military people, but in the procurement system, which you're going to be talking about uh, uh, a little later in the news programme, Mike. But uh, what is horrific about this is more concern for one challenger than the fact that some uh, 45 to possibly 60,000 Ukrainian casualties have occurred in the uh, offensive to date without any progress on the front. And of course, if we want to understand the reality of what's happening, then we have to go to social media because, of course, the BBC or the UK Ministry of Defence are simply not talking about the realities of what's going on in the battlefield. I've chosen Weep Union here, which is one of the ones that I've used quite frequently. The headline for the video report says it all double the losses of Bakhmud. So the slaughter... Um, as the Ukrainians tried to defend Bakhmud was very clear. And similarly, this is going on along the whole of the front, but with particularly high losses in the Zaporozhye uh, Robotnya area, where far from a breakthrough, the Ukrainians are simply being slaughtered on the front. So I, I find this shocking, Mike, that we should have politicians pushing this out. And then this has been reported over some period, but I think it's time to bring it up on the UK column screen. And that is this report uh, that appeared in an African newspaper and then disappeared again, uh, but essentially saying that the Zelensky family had bought up a luxurious villa um, Uh, in the million pound uh, price uh, bracket. And clearly this seems to indicate that somebody might be buying a bolt hole. Mm. We'll see. Uh, Now, on the issue of procurement, then, uh, this this took place uh, yesterday. This is the the Defence and Security Equipment International Conference uh, being launched by the Procurement Minister. Uh, Now, of course, this follows the House of Commons Defence Committee uh, report is worried about the Royal Air Force not having enough aircraft. So it's a bit ironic, perhaps, that he's standing in front of 
a typhoon there. Uh, but the Defence Committee said in its report that aviation uh, on aviation procurement uh, that the British compact sorry the British combat fleet now only provides a boutique capability uh, and lacks numerical depth uh, and it, it has an inadequate attrition reserve. So we have nothing uh, effectively. So you've been talking about tanks. It's the same in the air. Uh, and in fact, we've got a smaller uh, air force capability now than Italy. Uh, but anyway, bring that back on screen for a second. Uh, this is the Defence Procurement Minister. Let's uh, bring him on screen. James Cartledge is what he had to say. Now, we love a good acronym in the Ministry of Defence, he said, and I've actually invented one here, PIP. Uh, the first is PACE. So the first P stands for PACE. If you doubted the rapid transformation we're seeing on the battlefield, uh, you only need to look at the way Ukrainians are deploying drones and uncrewed systems to target and destroy the enemy. Is this guy delusional? Well, they, they are doing it, Mike, but of course the scale on which the Ukrainians are doing it is nothing compared to the scale and accuracy that the Russians are doing it. So, right. so we, we focus on this war as if it's only Ukraine involved. Um, what he should be looking at is the progress the Russians have made. Okay, so let's have a look at the eye of PIP then. So here he is. The second element of our approach is the eye and PIP. Draws us neatly back to the theme of the conference itself, integration. Uh, producing equipment at the speed of relevance requires greater integration with industry. And this is what this uh, uh, conference is about, Defence and Security Equipment International Conference. This is the fusion, the merging, merging of uh, defence, uh, political defence and industry defence. This is the rebuilding of the military industrial complex. Uh, and uh, we'll see the scale of that uh, in the future. Uh, and then he went on to say that brings me to the third and final dimen dimension, international partnerships. If there's one thing we've learned in the last two years, it, we simply can't go it alone. So what are they attempting to do here? Brian, build uh, the one world military in front of our eyes here with merging of, of government and defense industry, plus uh, the merging of governments as, as yeah. uh, yes. Well, the, the, the main thing I pick up uh, from this is that we can't go it along alone. We've been told this for years. So as a nation that could build ships, build aircraft, build rockets, build radars, systems, all of a sudden our own government told us how useless we were. We could not produce this material. But if we look at North Korea, let's come back to North Korea. North Korea is, is clearly producing equipment that the UK can't produce. Why? They must have invested in their own infrastructure and their own expertise. So this is the UK government deliberately destroying this country from the inside uh, so that we have to team up with other nation states and in particular with other commercial organisations. Uh, so I agree. It, yes, and interoperability has been a key theme of uh, Ministry of Defence doctrine for the last lot of years. So let's bring Patrick Sanders, the Chief of the... Def uh, sorry, he's not Chief of the Defence Staff. I do apologise. Chief of the General Staff, uh, back on screen. Uh, and it says here, since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Putin's Russia is increasingly isolated. I think it's not. We're just about to have a look at that. And the world is tiring of its disinformation narrative. So again, he's not really looking at reality. So let's just bring reality back on screen. Because as we mentioned last week, with the expansion of BRICS, we're now talking about 3.7 billion people uh, that are looking in the direction of Russia and China including the Russian and Chinese populations, of course. So Russia is not isolated at all. And this is just illusion on the part of, of uh, British military uh, uh, elite. Well, and I think that is the problem, delusion. OK, well, if you like what the UK column does, please support us. Come and join us. Take on a subscription and uh, join the community where you can talk to other people and swap information. Uh, you might also like to make a purchase from the UK Column Shop. That would be of great help to us. And of course, we always say, please share the information. The whole point of reporting is to allow other people to check our information and to share it with other individuals. Now, we've got a key event coming up, Mike. Yes, uh, Saturday the 30th of September, a symposium in, it's in Sweden, but it's going to be streamed by Oracle Films, possibly by us as well. Uh, on guard for the liberty of mankind, uh, I'll be at this. Uh, and uh, well, it's got uh, Sasha uh, Latipova, uh, Meryl Nass, Catherine Austin Fitz, uh, Richard Werner, John Titus, Philip Cruz, uh, Renata Holzeisen, and Andrew Bridget Bridgen will be there as well. So uh, if you want to find out more about that, have a look at the uh, URL that's on screen at the moment. It'll be in the, the URL will be in the show notes as well. It's really good to see this 
um, now coming up around the world. And Debbie, you've got a, a new blog. I have indeed quite a jamboree of topics you'll see on there, but also I've got a theory and I would be really grateful for viewers' opinions on my theory. So have a look at it. Okay, excellent. And a quick advert here for um, um, Professor Michael Esfeld, Common Law Requires the Courage to Judge. So if you get on the UK column website under Constitution, you can have a look at that one. Uh, we've got uh, an interview for tomorrow, Thursday the 13th. Uh, Alex Thompson interviewing Charles Hotel, and that's all about the Clinton Foundation. I think people will find that extremely interesting. Now, we've had some really good emails in, which we always like to echo back to our audience uh, because it's, it's very nice for us, but also it shows the wider audience that people are reacting. Uh, so this uh, gentleman, Terry, says he's a postman in a particular part of the country, an avid follower of the UK column work. And uh, he goes on to say that he'd like to help wake more people up to the reality of our situation as a society under dictators and evil actors. And I want to ask you for a few beginner tips and advice on how to conduct a brief but informative conversation. Now, I think this is something we can pick up in extra time, but I'll just say the best way to deal with this is to start and look at your own work. So rather than think too much, get out there and try it. And uh, this one uh, is a thank you to David Card, uh, UKDefenceMatters.com. We've been having a dialogue. He's paying attention to UK column reporting about defence matters. Uh, but he said, I'd be grateful if you could give a plug to the UKDefenceMatters.com website uh, and the information there. So if you're interested in defence matters, please go and check that out. Um, also a report in from uh, Stroud again with this organisation CSSD that was causing trouble. If you freeze the screen here, you can see that people are now starting to call this organisation out and there is some pushback uh, from the local council, which is good. Um, this one here was sent through to me, so a big thank you to the lady that sent it through. Um, social work today, uh, picking up on the fact that a report has come out saying that family court proceedings are linked to suicide, mental and physical health problems in a new study. But the only problem is that study simply focuses on family court proceedings uh, with a domestic abuse element. And of course, we know that um, families who go into family court proceedings invariably suffer similar stress and angst due to the whole nature of these secretive court cases. So we will report more on this in due course. Now, uh, Debbie, that brings you back with us because you have an incredible story, which was difficult to believe when you first talked to us about it, to do with anorexic patients. Yes, it, it is. It's a, a very harrowing and difficult segment. And I would, in advance, ask viewers for their experiences because there are going to be many that have been affected by anorexia nervosa and so this story will be very poignant to them. So anorexia is classified as a, a severe mental health illness, but we already know that the waiting list for youngsters waiting for um, advice, assessment and treatment for mental health is, is surging, including those with uh, food disorders and eating disorders. So I was very shocked to see the headlines on The Telegraph recently saying that anorexia patients may be given palliative care not life-prolonging treatment under new NHS guidance. This is incredibly alarming. So I went on and had a, another deep dive into this and saw another story from the Sunday Telegraph, which I've highlighted here, which is saying that patients as young as 18 who are at risk of dying from anorexia may be given palliative care rather than treatment to prolong life under new NHS guidance. A leading eating disorder psychiatrist called for the alarming guidelines to be repealed, whilst a senior MP described putting anorexia suffer sufferers on a palliative pathway as horrific. Now, this pathway is called SEED, and we'll come into the SEED pathway. I think the uh, term is extremely uh, interesting. But just carrying on on that article a little bit, um, the authors of this paper, this SEED pathway, 
seem to suggest that their approach would come from reducing costs associated with lengthy admissions to specialist eating disorder units or acute hospitals, which I find particularly shocking. Tory MP Caroline Noakes has said to put sufferers on a palliative pathway is just horrific. Particularly concerning is the failure to consult the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So I went a little bit further to see who had written this paper suggesting that this seed pathway should be considered. And we're talking about considered for the NHS here. So I went to look at the paper and there it is, a PubMed paper, Caring for Patients with Severe and Enduring Eating Disorders. That stands for SEED, Certification, Harm Reduction, Palliative Care and the Question of Futility. So if we look at the abstract of the paper, we can see, um, in, please freeze the screen and read all of it, and you can access the full paper online. But at the bottom there, it says, in addition, patients with SEED may also contemplate whether a compassionate death would be better than an ongoing lifetime of suffering. In this review, we outline arguments for and against the concept of futility in SEED and explore whether or when patients are competent to make the decision to die. So I went to look at the authors of this paper and I was interested to find that these are two American psychiatrists and I'll come on to the relevance of that in a minute. So we're looking at Patricia Westmoreland, who is a forensic psychiatrist. She's also a diplomat for the American Board of Psychiatry and she's also worked very um, for a very long time in Department of Corrections at Iowa. And we're also looking at Philip Mailer. Now, Philip Mailer has been named as a, a doctor of the year. He's got huge amounts of publications out and um, he's been honoured for his work in eating disorders. Now, I just want to make a quick comment with regards to these two psychiatrists who are from America. We must remember that in America, they use something called the DSM criteria. Now, the DSM criteria is the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is a completely different coding system in the USA than we should be using in the UK. In the UK, we should be using something called ICD-10. Now, that stands for the International Statistical Classification of Diseases. And both these are, are almost clinical tools to help psychiatrists make a diagnosis. In the UK, in Europe, we shouldn't be using DSM-5. And I've had many a challenging conversation around a government board table about this. But it seems that British psychiatrists are using American diagnostic tools. Is it happening in the UK? Yes, I'm afraid it is. It's being offered. Uh, I've just brought up one NHS trust here for you to see, which is um, Avon and Wiltshire. And there you can see I've underlined that they do offer the severe enduring eating disorders seed pathway. My biggest question, I think, on this, uh, gentlemen, is, is this the start of a bigger agenda? And how are people feeling out there that are affected with anorexia nervosa because I find this whole story and the, the fact that the NHS guidance has already changed um, completely shocking. Uh, yes, uh, I wonder what the last regime that uh, uh, considered mental health as a justification for uh, early death was. I think that would have been the Nazis with the T4 program, mm. Mike, is what it is. But it's interesting, isn't it? We, we criticise a lot of MPs as being very weak, ineffectual people, but that MP was saying it was horrific, which indeed it is. So the NHS as a care system has allowed a horrific policy to come in. But I challenge you, Debbie, I don't think this is some new bad policy. It's simply a continuation of something that never went away, which was the Liverpool Care Pathway, which was the intent of the NHS to destroy people's lives. And this is another arm of it. So in a way, we shouldn't be surprised. What it tends to say is that we should be getting in the clinical psychologists and the psychiatrists to actually have a look at the personalities of the people running the NHS and bringing in these horrific policies. Yes, okay. Well, let's uh, just briefly move on then to online safety. And well, lots going on in Michelle Donnellan's uh, Twitter feed. 
uh, because, of course, she's very keen to get it through. It's in its final stages. Uh, it was being debated. The House of Lords amendments were being debated in the House of Commons yesterday, and uh, there'll be more of that in the coming days. Uh, but we are in the final stages now. It's time to pass our online safety law and crack down on the sick, cowardly trolls who prowl out of sight online, says Michelle Donnellan. Uh, and uh, she was looking forward to meeting with all kinds of household names. I don't know any of them. Uh, and uh, th that was yesterday. So let's bring a couple of pictures on screen. So this is Michelle Donnellan also tweeting this out. The online safety bill is critical to protecting children because it's all about protecting children. Brian, it's not about shutting down freedom of speech or any uh, counter narrative at all. Uh, it will become law in a matter of days, marking a historic and unprecedented leap forward with British leadership in online safety uh, and uh, so on. So she was in Tent Downing Street with, with various people uh, from journalism and so on, from charity sector as well, all getting involved in passing on the uh, wonderful information that they have to make sure that the online safety bill makes the UK the safest place to be online. So uh, not to be outdone, the Local Government Association has... Uh, published their considerations of the Lord's amendments, and they're uh, also extremely excited about what's going on because councillors are experiencing increasing levels of online intimidation, abuse, and threats made against them, uh, which prevent elected members from representing their communities, the communities they serve, and undermine public trust in the democratic process. So we've got to stop people speaking out uh, because of that, Brian, you know. Uh, but uh, let's look at what, how the BBC's uh, talking about it. Well, of course, they're getting ready for this a piece of legislation as well, because grooming cases are at a record high amid online safety laws delay. So, so that's got to be dealt with. Um, and uh, we'll look, we'll just remind everybody very briefly, uh, this is the status of it. It is in its final stages. There are consideration of amendments. Um, really, there's still maybe perhaps a little bit of time to do some serious lobbying of MPs if people wanted to, um, but it's only a matter of days now. So um, it's time to not hold back. I, I, I look at the camera, uh, Mike, and I find myself thinking, what else do we have to say to our audience to help them understand that what we're looking at is a vicious dictatorship installing itself? It's going to kill off people who've got anorexia. It's not going to get in there and give them some love and compassion and attention to help them through their particular problem. No, it's easier, cheaper to kill them off. Let's do the same with the elderly people. And if you dare speak out about what's happening, well, we're going to bring in a bill to make sure we can silence you as well. It is getting pretty obvious that what we're dealing with is a full-blown dictatorship. And of course, where does it ultimately go to where all dictatorships go, which is breakdown, chaos and massive violence. So sorry to be a little bit forceful on this one, but I think we really need to understand that the evidence is all in front of our eyes. Well, um, BBC getting a little bit unhappy in other areas. So uh, let's see what they've been up to. And this is uh, our old friend, Laura Koonsberg. Uh, she says that civil servants are meant to be totally impartial but here's what the former Foreign Office chief did in the aftermath of the EU vote. Um, so she's suddenly got very, very squidgy about what's going on in the civil service. But my brain says this is very interesting because, of course, the BBC was very willing to hop in bed um, many years ago with the political charity Common Purpose, the same charity that was influencing the civil service in a totally political way. But let's have a look at the little film clip. On this occasion, this solitary occasion, I decided to tell my colleagues and therefore let ministers know that I had voted to remain in the European Union. Um, I felt that they would assume that in any case. So I decided to embrace it. Having covered politics for more than 20 years, though, it's extraordinary to hear you tell us that you told people how you voted. Because that principle of impartiality is what holds the civil service together. I was trying to maintain credibility and trying to convey a message to a group of people, most of whom I felt had voted to remain in the EU, that their personal feelings were beside the professional point. It was a personal decision. My board were not entirely comfortable. And all these years later, you can have a conversation about was it right with the right decision? So 
I, I just see this as sheer hypocrisy by the BBC. But um, what's your feeling on his his comment? He was putting. Sorry, I've answered. <laughs> what was your feeling on his comment, Mike? Well, uh, uh, in a sense, she's right because it's, this is a fairly unprecedented uh, situation. The, the uh, civil service traditionally uh, were proud of the fact that they maintained independence and uh, didn't take any political side. Yeah. Uh, that that is quite incredible. But we've seen. Uh, the civil service, as you say, since common purpose, the, since the training they received under common purpose, at least or around that time, uh, we've seen the the civil service shift uh, from being uh, politically independent to to absolutely pursuing political policies. Yeah. So let, let's have a look at um, that common purpose relationship with the BBC. This is a document from the 27th of August 2009, and it's the BBC replying to a freedom of information request asking about how much they'd spent on common purpose training. If we help you out with the text, the BBC spent £158,100 of our money, public money, on common purpose over seven years. Uh, I've got another document here. This is 25th of January 2007. Now, this was asking about uh, what a Mr. Harding from the BBC was doing sitting on the Common Purpose London Advisory Board. And in the reply, uh, we get two things. One is that the BBC spent £47,260 uh, on Common Purpose from January 2005 to 2007, uh, but they also dismissed uh, the question by saying that Mr. Harding attends Common Purpose in a private capacity. So the BBC stonewalling the pertinent question from the public about what was their relationship with this politically motivi motivated charity. And of course, the BBC was spending vast amounts of uh, licensed payers' money on training their staff for the common purpose political agenda, but, but that that must that statement is must be a lie because it's 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 not consistent internally. So uh, they uh, spend the money on common purpose training, but he's there in a private capacity. Yes, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Well, it's very BBC, Mike, yes. isn't it? So um, let's uh, just pop this up on screen. Now, many people not aware, there's a very good website called cpexpose.com where you can go and search for information on common purpose. Uh, but I've taken a little bit of the text where there was a report about Janet Paraskeva, the first civil service commissioner. And of course, she was heavily in bed with common purpose and uh, was closely related with the then chief executive of common purpose itself. So absolutely no separation of powers. Uh, I also have this one here. Uh, this is uh, talking about documents obtained by the Sunday Mirror, which show that three Whitehall departments hired an organisation to, quote, translate, unquote, the big society to officials. They attended brainstorming sessions and team building exercises in what was called a collaboration laboratory run by Common Purpose, the Home Office, Department of Communities and Local Government, and the Department for the Environment and Rural Affairs paid £12,044 for the course last year. And of course, what was this doing? This was absolutely politicising uh, the civil service, working through the individual bodies and training up people to adopt what I think people would now identify as the uniparty uh, uh, um, ideology uh, covering everything from Europe uh, uh, to how the UK would change in the future. Well, if that's one part of the BBC's hypocrisy, let's have a look at how they deal with free speech. And a big thank you to the UK column viewer that pointed me at this one, a tweet by Sophie Little, uh, lady from BBC Radio Norfolk. And she was saying that uh, she'd uh, done a final episode in which she'd been critical of the BBC. And that was immediately cut out of the posted uh, audio report. So let's hear what the BBC cut out. You're listening to Treasure Quest, the final ever episode with me, Sophie Little on BBC Radio Norfolk. I hope you don't mind me taking a moment to say something, but something that's always bothered me is when an individual has any kind of platform and they don't use it to speak up for others at a time when they should. So I hope you don't mind me taking a moment on this final show to use this one. 
Local radio, as I think we all well know, is a vital public service. And it's my opinion that these drastic sweeping cuts taking place to BBC local radio all across the country are not only detrimental to everyone that enjoys switching on their local station and hearing their favourite shows, and detrimental to the local communities who value it and use it, but actually these cuts are unbelievably unfair to those who need local public service broadcasting the most. Those who are lonely and isolated, or those who are unable to leave their house, or unable to use the internet, or unable to pay for broadband or smart devices. Those who not only take joy from company of a familiar voice coming out of their radio, but who truly rely on it to keep going. And if you think that sounds dramatic, I wish you could be privy to some of the conversations I've had with listeners in recent weeks. They have reduced me to tears. The BBC's mission, as defined by Royal Charter, to act in the public interest serving all audiences. I believe in the BBC. I believe in all that it stands for. It's vital and it's important. But I will say this how I see it. I feel the cuts are ableist, ageist, and they place economic barriers for some people too. And I felt incredibly nervous to say this, thinking about the many bosses above my head and how this goes against the grain of all of the training I've ever had in my 15 years that I've been here. But I remind myself that this is not their BBC. It is our BBC. And like all of our public services, it exists to serve you. And so it must be scrutinised and held to account to protect its own integrity. And while I'm here, can I just say thank you for all of the wonderful moments that we've shared across these airwaves. They have shaped me and I will never forget them. So brave lady, and she mentions that it's difficult for her to do this because of the fear of the BBC. Okay, uh, I just wanted to quickly cover a little bit on the G20, which was taking place, of course, uh, at the weekend. Uh, and so here they all are uh, in India for that. A bit of a fight uh, at the end of it over the wording of the final declaration. Uh, a bit of a fight is a slight understatement. Uh, if you look at the, what it says there, I'm going to say... It was definitely not one earth, one family and one future. That might be what the rules-based international order would like to see or would like it to be, but that was not what was going on uh, at that time. The fight, of course, was over Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, contrary to the delusions of some, is not isolated, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, so this year's declaration does not mention Russia uh, or Russian aggression, as the one from last year did from Mali. Uh, and the text has changed, or the language has changed, uh, to remove the idea of the war against Ukraine uh, to the war in Ukraine. Uh, so let's just bring this on from uh, India's uh, representative at the G20. was tweeting out this. Uh, the most complex part of the entire G20 was to bring consensus on the geopolitical paragraphs, brackets, Russia, Ukraine, uh, this was done over 200 hours of non-stop negotiations, 300 bilateral missions, meetings, sorry, 15 drafts. Uh, in this, I was greatly assisted by two volunteers. Uh, so that uh, is quite an incredible situation, really, for these types of events. The Russians, of course, were very happy with this. Sergei Lavrov said this. I would also like to note the important role played by the Indian presidency, which for the first time in the history of the G20 has consolidated its participants that represent the global south. Uh, this consolidated position adopted by the Global South in defense of its legitimate interests helped thwart the West's attempt to Ukrainianize the agenda at the expense of discussing, of discussing pressing issues facing developing countries. Uh, the Ukrainians, of course, had a different view. Uh, and uh, this was from Oleg Nikolenko saying the G20 adopted a final declaration. We're grateful to the partners who tried to include strong worded wording in the text. However, in terms of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, G20 has nothing to be proud of. This is how the main elements of the text could look to be closer to reality. And of course, he's put red lines through everything that he didn't like in the final declaration. Uh, somebody who was probably most apoplectic about this was Justin Trudeau. And he was also pretty apoplectic about the fact that he was treated pretty badly by uh, India. Uh, so this was uh, what he tweeted out. Uh, he was put, putting out some positive language here. Prime Minister Modi and I met today. We spoke about our G20 priorities and progress made over the past few days, as well as our views on fighting climate change, advancing gender equality, supporting Ukraine, and upholding the rule of law. 
but unfortunately, uh, he was being pretty heavily criticized uh, by Modi uh, because of uh, what India describes as continuing extremist anti-India activities in Canada. Uh, and he was talking about organized crime, drug syndicates, human trafficking, and so on. Modi didn't post a welcome note to Trudeau as he did with other leaders. Uh, and so Trudeau was very keen to get away. Unfortunately, as keen as he was to get away, he couldn't because his plane broke down. Uh, and so it took him two extra days uh, before he could actually get away from the place. Would that plane have been contributing to global warming? Well, well possibly? It, it would, of course. Yeah. It would, of course. So anyway, let's just look at the language. This was the language uh, from the G20 to recognize the importance of accelerating efforts towards phase down of unabated coal power in line with national circumstances and recognizing uh, the need for support towards just transitions because it wasn't just the Ukrainian situation that the West was very unhappy with. It was also the climate change position uh, because as you can see from this, they're absolutely not prepared to stop uh, phase down of unabated coal power because it will only happen in line with national circumstances and in line with just transitions. Uh, and in fact, this has been uh, talked about over the last six months or so because Russia, both Russia and China have, for example, um, stated that they are intending to give Afghanistan, uh, build them new uh, coal-fired power stations in order to try to bring, bring Afghanistan into the 20th century, never mind the 21st century. Um, so the, the, the green agenda not going too well at uh, the G20 either. Uh, and of course, let, we'll just bring this, uh, the other aspect of this that the West was trying to uh, generate was separation between India and China, break that relation, drive a wedge in there. Uh, this was the Global Times from just before the G20. Uh, who is the spoiler of the G20 summit in New Delhi? And they're really highlighting the fact that, that in this article that there has been this attempt uh, to drive a wedge between India and China and try to break this whole thing up. Uh, and it just wasn't going to work. Yeah, interest, interesting times. Okay, uh, Debbie, I think we're back uh, with you and you're having a look at return of Victorian era diseases. What a world yeah, we live in. Yeah, at last the mainstream media seem to be catching up a little bit. So this uh, story in The Express uh, saying that over half a million Brits could be suffering from a Victorian era disease. This particular article is referring to gout. I could say so much more about this. However, I won't. But it's not just gout. We've got scabies and rickets as well on the way up. And um, like I say, maybe they should have read my article that I put up on the UK column over a year ago with Back to the Past, a re-emergence of Victorian diseases where I forecast that this may be happening. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple of NHS stories as well. The first one is from the Mail, which uh, says that doctors are demanding that the NHS stops hiring lower ranking medics. Now, you may have heard Dr. Cartland talking about noctors or associate physicians, um, and this is what they're referring to. And they're basically saying that these are uh, juniors that are no way qualified as doctors. But what really struck me in the article was that there was made reference to anaesthetic associates. So the Royal College of Anaesthetists, I'm hoping, are going to oppose these plans because it would seem that they're looking at making uh, graduates that have just done a, a normal, maybe a, a BSc um, degree and bolting on a couple of years course to make them anaesthetic associates. Now, it normally takes nine years to train an anaesthetist. So my question is, if you are having an anaesthetic or going for a procedure, who is putting you to sleep? Maybe you might want to ask. Uh, the other thing is that the NHS appear, appear to be grabbing airspace, would you believe? So in Northumberland, there's going to be an NHS drone trial that's going to take place between February and May next year. Now, apparently, they've snatched too much airspace, and this is going to give a, a, a huge, make a huge impact on light aircraft and general um, air. air well, it's, it's going to jam up the airwaves, I guess. So they're really protesting about it. But I just wanted to show people where it's going to be happening um, as well. So, yes, there you can see, you see, they say the whole thing is a massive airspace grab. So we've got land grabs going on now, airspace. But if you are in that part of the country, where is it going to be? There you go. There's the red zone. So you might want to, if you're up in that area, you might want to do a little bit more research to see um, if you're going to be underneath the uh, the drone flight path. Um, 
also just skipping on to the MHRA because you know I can't I can't do too many weeks without uh, focusing on the MHRA board meeting next Tuesday can't wait so I found a YouTube 10 years ago and I haven't got the YouTube because I thought well I'll just do a screenshot of what it is and viewers can go and have a look at it so this was an introduction to the MHRA innovation office now this was 10 years ago and I've just grabbed a little screenshot there of the transcription where Dr. Ian Hudson, who was the CEO of the MHRA, is talking about nanomedicines. And this is an innovation office to encourage companies to bring all of their new novel medicines our way. However, let's just remind ourselves, Dr. Ian Hudson was made the MHRA's CEO in 2013. This He was the CEO prior to June Rain. But also on his watch at the MHRA, he secured a nice fat wallet with none other than Melinda, Bill and Melinda Gates. They were awarded, the MHRA were awarded over £980,000 for collaboration. So we know that there's been collaboration. This is old news. However, I would just like to remind everybody that Dr. Ian Hudson, who was talking about innovation and nanomedicines 10 years ago, went straight from the MHRA, having handed the baton straight to June Rain. And where did he go? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So here you can see that Ian Hudson is a senior advisor, integrated development, and yet another revolving door. Quite incredible. <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I, I know we, we've, we've got Friday syndrome, Debbie, which was, <laughs> sorry, oh, didn't get that right. We've got Wednesday syndrome. Yeah. We, we don't know what to say. The reports are now getting so utterly incredible. We don't know what to say. OK, well, let's move on to this one. Um, New York Post article. People who trust their gut are suckers for BS. BS, conspiracy theories. Apparently, scientists say, scientists say this. And if we add a little bit more here, people who conform to a cultural belief system are more willing to accept nonsense from someone. Well, first thing that comes into my head is the BBC, because, of course, that's a culture from uh, from start to finish. But what they're really saying to you here is don't trust your gut instinct. And this, to me, is so incredibly dangerous, because, of course, if anybody ends up in a survival situation, one of the things they must rely on is their inner strength. And if you take that away from them, they are always going to fail. So what is the message here? The message appears to be, don't trust your own instinct. Of course, trust us, the scientists. Well, in the uh, rather glossy article, uh, I presume this is a sort of scientific evaluation of what's going on. So we can see um, a... Uh, uh, diagram here, which has got uh, all of the worst conspiracy theories, whatever it is. Are birds real? Was fascinating. I didn't know what that, that one that was. One. Presumably the New York Post does. Uh, but you can see that what we've got are genuine concerns mixed up with um, pointless conspiracy theories and the whole thing being conflated. What did catch my eye is some of the uh, comments on this particular article where people were coming straight back and saying, yes, but the thing is that a lot of the uh, um, comments that have been made by conspiracy theorists have now turned out to be true. So there was quite a lot of pushback to this article. But if we follow it through and say, where did the substance come from? It actually came from this Swedish university. And this is the headline for their own article. They fall more easily for conspiracy theories. Uh, this was written on the 7th of September this year by Jonas Roseland. Um, if we add this uh, little bit of comment in, it said people who primarily use their own gut feeling uh, to determine what is true and false are more likely to believe conspiracy theories. That's the conclusion of researchers at the university 
who have investigated the relationship between susceptibility to misleading information and the conviction that the truth is relative. So this is a very mucky little pond. Uh, Here's one of the key ladies. This is the scientist that we should pay attention to. She's actually a PhD student at the Department of Behavioral Studies. So she's not even qualified. She's just a student. She says, I think many people who emphasize a more uh, relativistic view of what truth is mean well. They believe that it's important that everyone should be able to make their voice heard. These results show that such a view can actually be quite dangerous. And uh, if we add a bit bit of the key points here, she says there's two types of truth relativism. Uh, They did a study with a thousand Swedes. Um, They were asked to answer questions on their views as to what truth is. And they then had to take a position on various conspiracy theories. And then in the second study, more than 400 people from the UK participated. The questions were expanded and the participants' degree of dogmatism and willingness to adapt their perceptions when faced with new facts was measured. And from the material, they unearthed the two types of relativism. I hope everybody's understanding exactly what this lady is talking about. Um, The truth is subjective. That's a bad thing. And it included those who believe the truth depends on which cultural group you belong to, so-called cultural relativism. Um, Well, another quote here from the lady, she said, got the idea of doing all this. I think this is what she's saying when listening to debates about whether students could learn factual knowledge or be encouraged uh, to themselves seek out what they think is true. It sounded like debaters had completely opposite assumptions about what truth is and argued that their own approach was best. Although our study did not investigate causality, we see that truth relativism seems to be linked to a greater belief in misleading information. It may be important to keep that in mind. So is this scientific, Mike, or is this somebody's opinion? I'm going to say I think this is a little bit of psychology and cultural relativism within the science, uh, within the psychologist mind. Um, but if uh, I just bring in something else here, this is a report on Canada, uh, a new Holocaust denier bill, which they say came in on June uh, 2022, an offence to deny or belittle the Holocaust. And um, this is a lady who uh, experienced the hate crime police turning up at her home They apparently traveled two days, one day here, one day back, to give her a hard time about what she was reporting. And uh, what seems to be going on here is a bit of hate crime, cultural relativism. So um, I'll leave people to freeze these and have a look. This one was to do with adverts in respect of our video clips on bird's eye advertising. And the person here saying, well, actually, Bird's Eye was using fear in its adverts many years ago, and they give an example of that. And so could we have a bit of advertising cultural relativism here? So my point is the main part of that uh, psychologist's work is give you the impression you shouldn't trust your gut instinct, which, of course, is amazingly dangerous because that takes away our ability to protect ourselves. Well, um, Debbie, lift our mood a bit because you've been seeing some really good things happening um, down in Cornwall and other places. What have you got for us? Well, yes, I had the most fantastic day on um, Saturday when I went to Totnes and I went with Stephanie, our producer, and we met, amongst others, we met Adrian, we met Giles, we met Pam in Totnes who were in the high street with all their their um, literature with copies of the light, um, leaflets, information. I We just had such a lovely warm welcome, members of the public just passing by and, and chatting. And of course, they're right at the centre of the whole Mariana Spring uh, story. So uh, there's far more to be said. But, you know, if you're in Totnes, do go down, support them, go down and say hello, because we had a fantastic time and they've been there every week. You know, I think it's from about 12 o'clock. But incredible day. Thank you so much to everyone in Totnes. I will be back. Okay, good. And lastly, we've got a little bit of a poem. 
We have, thank you so much to our wonderful viewer who sent this. Um, I'm going to read it out. Do not comply. I will not wear it on my face. I will not wear it in any place. I will not wear it to get in. I will not wear it on my chin. I will not wear it out of fear. I will not wear your useless mask. I will not wear it. Do not ask. I will not take your jab in arm. I will not give myself that harm. I won't inhale it in powder form. I won't consume it cold or warm. I will not damage brain or heart. I will not damage any part. I will not mess with mRNA. I will not, no matter what you say. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. And well done to everybody who is out there to challenge this horrible system that's uh, installing itself in the United Kingdom. Uh, enough people, many hands make light work is the key thing. We must end there. A very big thank you to all of our viewers worldwide and a big thank you to our subscribers. We will be back shortly with extra time.